In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as always. Help us then to understand the Gospel of Matthew as we try to put it all together today for our last meeting, particularly the last two main subjects of the resurrection and the Great Commissioning. But help us to put it all together so that we can live it because the Gospels, the Bible itself, although it being the Word of God is just words on paper, if we leave it there, it's only when we pick it up and live it that it truly becomes the Word of God. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all thanks. In Jesus' name. It's always sad to come to the last meeting. Um, of course, I always say, give it a sigh of relief. You know. uh, nevertheless, uh, to think of next week not being able to do, to do this is a little bit of uh, sadness in there. Uh, but it shows that I appreciate your coming here to listen to my few words. Today, I want to not only cover the last two subjects of the gospel, but then try to put it all together so that when someone asks you, you know, what's it all about, you'll have an answer. The problem with so many Catholics is that they don't know their faith well enough uh, to confront something when they hear it and they don't agree. Uh, and we should. We should be able to do that. Um, you know, part of our, part of the great commissioning on this subject or on this chapter is that we are all commissioned to preach and teach. We are all given a small part of God's plan of salvation, which involves what we call evangelization. And that means that we don't have to stand up here and have, uh, you know, a, a whole group of people in front of us. But when we are in conversation with people who may not understand uh, or may have a different opinion or disagree with us or something comes up that isn't quite right, uh, I would hope that you would have the urge and the bravery to confront them. That is what it's all about. And so we ask that uh, you not only hear and understand what we're teaching today, but take this summary and actually digest it in such a way that if and when uh, you are confronted that you'll be able to respond in an intelligent way and you will free, be free to do so. Anyways, uh, let us go on. The main subject today is the revelation. No. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead already. <laughs> it is the resurrection. Excuse me. Uh, see, I'm already upset. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Many people, particularly many Protestant churches, feel that the resurrection is far more important uh, than the crucifixion and anything else that Christ did. And I don't think that that's true. If we go back to the idea that Jesus was on a mission, coming to earth in the first place, to be the divine gift that God the Father gave mankind, to be the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, so to speak, um, and he has accomplished that. In all of the past meetings, we've talked about this journey that he was on, this mission, and all of the many things that he did, primarily in establishing his church. Remember the implementation of God's plan of salvation began with Abraham way back 2,000 years before Christ and proceeded very slowly with the help of um, Moses and then David and then the prophets and many others. But those people could only take it so far because they were human beings and they were not or did not have any ability to offer a perfect sacrifice back to a perfect God for the sins of mankind. And yet God loved us so much. He loved his creation and still loves us with a perfect love. So he gave us part of himself. And that was in the form of Christ, who became a human being simply because he wanted to experience all the things that we experienced and lived a life uh, that all human beings have to live, at least in a part, part of that time. And then at a moment in time, his baptism, his divinity and humanity comes back so that he can preach and teach and work miracles and so forth to show that he has the power to say and do what he did and establish the church by giving the keys to the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of God begins with our acceptance of Christ and our living out that acceptance through the teachings of the church. So the church becomes sort of the gateway to the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't say, and I, I'll just digress for a moment, that doesn't mean that people who do not belong to the Catholic Church cannot get, get to heaven, but it's a little more difficult for them. It's the same way as if, and I always liken it to a trip from the uh, West Coast to, say, Washington, D.C. Uh, if you go in, in a chariot or by horseback, it's pretty rough. If you go by, uh, say, a, a Buick like I have, an old one, 
uh, it's a little more comfortable. If you go by, say, a Ferrari or um, Mercedes-Benz, it's a lot more comfortable. Well, in uh, some respects, the Catholic Church is that way. It is the Ferrari of, of uh, vehicles to, to get to heaven. It is the gateway to opening up um, ourselves to God and heaven. And he established all of that. All right. And then he was the perfect offering by his death and resurrection on the cross. But if it stopped there, people would say at that time, or shortly after, or for a while after, well, that was an amazing thing that he, he did, but he's gone now, and what, what do we have to look forward to? And that's, of course, what the Pharisees were hoping. That once he's gone, he's gone, and you know, it'll die out in a short time. In fact, even that was brought up in uh, one of the Gospels where Nicodemus, I believe, gets up in the Sanhedrin and says, we got to be careful about executing this man because remember, there was somebody else back a few years back uh, by the name of such and such. Uh, and after he died, it finally just disappeared and everything went away and returned to normal. And that's, of course, what the Pharisees were hoping. But that's not what was God's plan. God's plan was to carry it forward that the death of Christ uh, was only the beginning of the church. It was the way that the gates of heaven were opened so that mankind could again return to heaven or return to God after they died, provided that they died in the good graces of God. But to show that, to prove that Jesus Christ was not only the Lamb of God and the Son of God, but God raised him from the dead to return to full life in a glorified state as a way of showing all mankind that he accepted the sacrifice that God gave us through Christ. He accepted the divine offering that Christ made by his death. And so the resurrection is a sign of approval and acceptance and a blessing. And that is the way we should look at it. Uh, it is a very important part of the event of the passion, death, and resurrection. As I said last week, those three parts make up one event, the great event of the climax of God's plan of salvation. If any one of those parts were missing, the other parts would be void. Last week we talked about the development uh, and the initiation uh, of the divine sacrifice uh, that Christ became in the offering of his body and blood 
at the Last Supper, and then he tells us to do this in memory of him. That idea of doing it in memory of him is more than just repeating the delivering of the body and blood in the form of bread and wine. It means that he wants us to follow him in all respects, even to death if necessary. And so the living of, of Christ as depicted in the New Testament is a picture that we should actually become ourselves by living it out. It is more than just words in a book. And it is just more than something that we do on Sunday. It is something that we should live every day of our life. And it is not so much in form. I'm often concerned about people who hold their hands like this in church, you know, and go around, you almost have to look for their halo. Uh, and I'm not putting that down. It's just that it's more than that. It's more than, and it's what's inside, in your heart, and in your mind, and what you're thinking, and you live it every day of your life. That's when the word of God becomes alive because it is in you. We are the culmination of God's life on earth and that is why we are called the body of Christ because we can do those things among our own people that Christ wants us to do. Could do by himself but he wants us to fulfill that. And therefore, we become as much a part of him as he is a part of us. So the resurrection is a sign of approval, a sign that Christ has, I mean, God has accepted the sacrifice and has opened the doors of heaven. In addition, before Christ rose from this earth and ascended back into heaven, he commissioned the apostles. Remember, he has already given them the keys to the kingdom, that is the power to loose and bind dogma, doctrine, and forgive sin. Remember, on the night of the first resurrection, of the great resurrection, he says, peace be to you, whose sins you have forgiven, they are forgiven, and whose sins you have retained. Remember, way back, he sent out the apostles two by two, and they came back, you know, with all kinds of great stories. He sent them out to heal, to teach, to preach, and to do other things. But the one thing that he didn't send them out to do was what? 
forgive sin. Because he had to die on the cross before that was possible. He forgave, forgave sins after he died on the cross. And that's why if you read uh, John's Gospel, I believe it's chapter 5, uh, he gives them this power. After he's given them the power to uh, do all of the other things, the keys to the kingdom, uh, established the priesthood and the Eucharist in the process of the Last Supper. And now he is giving them the power to bind and loose sin. Many Protestant churches uh, still feel that it is not necessary to go to a priest to forgive sin. And for small venial sins, that's probably true, even in, in Catholic understanding. But for major things, no. You have to go to a priest and go through the formality of the sacrament of reconciliation, and Christ gave the apostles that power. So we are part of the disciples and we also have a certain portion of that power as well. Yeah. <clears throat> Any questions so far? <coughs> Excuse me. This thing is bothering me here because I feel like it's ready to fall off. <clears throat> Let's go to this summary that's on the back of your handout for today. And as I say here, if you were to ask, or to be asked in a few words, what the Gospel of Matthew is all about, what would you say? And the following is something that I hope you will remember and give it, you will be given an answer here. The Gospel of Matthew contains two main points. Who is Jesus for you and for me? Remember, Jesus says, who does the people say that I am? And some say, well, you're Elijah, or you're one of the prophets, or, uh, you know, they give various answers. But he said, more importantly, who do you say that I am? It's one thing to say that you fulfill all of the rules and regulations of the Catholic Church. But it's another thing to say that Christ is living in you. And remember, when we receive the consecrated bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ at Mass, then Christ is in us, both physically and spiritually. And it is up to us to live knowing that he is there with us 
And our speech and our actions should show that. So the whole idea of who is Jesus Christ for you or for me is a very, very important question. One that you should really sit down before the end of this Lenten season and try to develop an answer for yourself. Who is he really? And am I following his teachings? To go on then, if you want more detail, and this is, he came to earth as a normal human being to endure the normal life experiences of all mankind and to take upon his shoulders the sins of all mankind and then to offer himself back to the Father as the perfect sacrifice for the reparation of all sin. There was nothing that mankind had or has, in spite of how smart we have gotten since then, uh, we still have nothing to offer back that is acceptable, that is equal to a perfect God for the remission of all sin. And therefore, God had to give us himself in the form of Christ. So his passion, death, and resurrection was the essence, the climax of God's plan of salvation in the process. He also accomplished the following. Established the Catholic Church, which is the beginning of the kingdom of God, as I mentioned. Giving the keys to the kingdom to Peter as head of the apostles and the church. He gave power to the church to bind, to loose doctrine, dogma, and sin. If the Pope told me that <coughs> tomorrow was Monday, I don't have to believe that because he is not infallible in those kinds of things. Uh, you have a lot of people that get really upset uh, when the idea or the doctrine of infallibility is brought up. And all you have to do is answer them or remind them that it is only applicable in uh, items of faith and morals. Nothing else. Pope Francis can talk all he wants, or any pope can. But if it is not in the matter of faith and morals, then he is not infallible. And even when he makes a declaration of something under the authority of infallibility, it is something that has been researched and gone through several committees and over a period, long period of time before it is made into a dogma. Now, what is the difference between doctrine and dogma? Doctrine is all of those items under normal circumstances that we have to observe in order to be Catholics in good faith. But we can dispute, uh, we can internalize and sort of uh, 
adjust the thinking uh, somewhat to our own conscience. Dogma is something that is far greater and more important than doctrine. And dogma is something that we must believe in order to be Catholics in good faith. But dogma is a rare thing. In the past 200 years, there has only been two items uh, of dogma offered to Catholics, and both of them concerned Mary. The assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, in 1858 and the Immaculate... I'm getting the mixed up. The Immaculate Conception in 1850 and the Assumption in 1958. Those are the two items of dogma that have been established and published for all mankind. But those are things that people believed anyways. Usually, they will only come out in the form of dogma if there is some reasonable dispute. And this, this was more of an honorary thing than it was uh, something that was disputed. Yeah. Why do most of our Protestant brothers and sisters have a hard time with number one? Accepting that uh, Jesus founded, I mean, established the Catholic Church. Well, it's, it goes back to the concept of who is the head. And in most of the cases, is that they do not like to be told from Rome what to do and what not to do. Yeah. Um, I am in the process of starting a book just today on that very subject uh, with a group of men that I'm connected with. Uh, it is a book called Rebel in the Ranks, and it is about Martin Luther and the Reformation. And it very clearly shows that most of the breakup of the church has to do with our allegiance uh, to Rome and the taking of directions from the Pope. Now, if you think about it, that is the one thing that holds the Catholic Church together is because if you go into any church anywhere in the world on a Sunday, you will have exactly the same readings. If you go into Protestant churches, everyone is different and some might be correct and some might not be. All right. But it is the unification and the, the direction uh, of rules and regulations that come out of Rome that holds us together. And the fact that before any major change can be adopted by anyone, it has to have uh, approval by Rome. Uh, so we should be thankful for this establishment of our church through Peter, the apostles, and the Pope who is the descendant of Peter. 
Rebel in the Ranks is the name of the book by Brad Gregory. And if you want to read, uh, it's not an easy book to read, but it is extremely informative um, and enlightening in many ways. And when I read it, I felt that it had caused me to appreciate my faith a lot more um, because <coughs> of the unification of Rome. Of Rome. Yes. Remember, the Catholic Church is the only organization in the entire world that has been in existence for over 2,000 years. There. I will continue that thought a little bit because that follows his book that we talk about. The book we just finished was about converts from Protestant churches to the Catholic Church. And the uniform theme that I saw through the whole book and nine people was that their Protestant churches were so inconsistent with no common practice and dogma, whereas the Catholic Church was uniform. Yes, that's right. Yes. The, it's unfortunate the Protestant Church, and we're not putting, when we say this, we're not putting the Protestant churches down. There's a lot of good people in those churches. But what Dick and I are saying is that Ours has a treasure that they don't recognize. And that is the uniformity of doctrine and dogma that is maintained by Rome. Let us go on. As we said before, uh, the resurrection of Christ was the acceptance by God the Father of the sacrifice that Christ did and all that he did. Remember in the apparition of what we call the transfiguration, the voice that came from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him meaning the Father has approved all that Christ did, and it is being shown by the resurrection. But it is not there. This is not the end of the line. In fact, it is just the beginning, the beginning of the Catholic Church, and Christ has designated not only the apostles, but all of us, the body of Christ, and that is why it is the body of Christ. We have the hands and the, and the voices and the ability to do the things that Jesus did while he was here. But because of the multiplication of, of Catholics, people in the church, it is up to us now to carry on the legacy that he gave us. And... <clears throat> says, we are called to be the salt of the earth and the light to the nations, not of the nations, but to the nations. In other words, we have to show by our speech and our actions that we are Catholics. That doesn't mean that we have to go around with billboards on it or some sign that says, I am a Catholic, you know. 
in flashing lights or whatever, but in our joy of understanding who we are and what we are, the treasure that we have, we should show that through our actions and our speech uh, and actively participating in the works of the church through prayer and private devotions and by carefully living the life that we profess by our actions and speech, as I just said, and all of this with the help of the Holy Spirit and the sacraments. The sacraments are so extremely important, and it's unfortunate that most Protestant churches uh, recognize baptism, and that's about it. Some of them recognize uh, the Eucharist, but uh, do not have the ability to, to consecrate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, but they do have a communion service. And all of that is good, but it is not near as good, and it doesn't take them near as far uh, as the Catholic Church does and will do for them if they join. The end results of all of the above um, is eternal life with God, and as designated by the Beatitudes, which sort of brings us back full term. This is what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. So I hope you've gotten something out of this. Um, it is something that is, well, Father MacDonald, one of our dear past pastors here used to say this is only a book of words it's not the word of God until you pick it up and live it uh, and I think that is so true yeah. I had a, a nun one time when I was teaching like this and I was picking up the stuff after the end of the meeting and I was putting you know things on top she said wait a minute wait a minute you're not supposed to be doing that nothing goes on top of the Bible I thought hmm it reminded me what Father McDonald said you know this was just a book of words it's not the word of God until you pick it up and live it put life into it then it becomes the word of God. Uh, any questions? Gee, I hope I haven't gotten you spelled out. Yeah. I think that uh, I think that statement to what uh, James said in the Bible. You know, it's only uh, not only a scripture, but faith without good works exactly. is empty. I won't say dead. It is empty. Yes. And unfortunately, you know, it's human nature to want to avoid responsibility. It's human nature to keep your thoughts private and so forth. But unfortunately, as Catholics, we have an obligation to share our faith. It is not something that we can hold here in our heart, it is not something, remember the cross, 
the cross goes in two directions. Ah, where's my <laughs> thank you. The cross is goes in two directions. God and mankind. Okay. But that is not complete. This is not what we would consider a cross until we put the Holy Spirit in it. And it is the Holy Spirit that helps us to fulfill our obligation of being the body of Christ. Remember the body of Christ, the divine body, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. But he left us a legacy, a purpose of carrying out his mission on earth to those that have not understood, those who have not had the ability or the privilege of learning what Catholicism is all about. So I'm saying that we have to put our faith, which is from here to here, into action from here to here. Any questions? All right. Well. Yes, Chad? Yes. In John's Gospel, it, in John's Gospel, if you read it carefully, Jesus says from the cross to John. Yeah, well, it is there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Behold your mother. In fact, I did a radio uh, commercial many years ago representing a program that uh, one of the churches in Southern California uh, was putting on called Behold Your Mother. And so I was the voice of Christ from the cross uh, saying, Behold Your Mother. <laughs> In some dramatic way, but it was, you know, it was very short, just a few words, but it was something I remembered because it was important. Yeah. Chapter 19, verse 26. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We have talked about the, um, the resurrection after Jesus um, rose and the fact that he appeared to women first and that they were the first ones to receive the message of it. Yeah, wait, please, quiet. That just that women were the first ones and. Um, one of my other Bibles in the study section, and it's talking about how 
um, because Eve was the one who messed things up, that had to come through the women to kind of straighten things out. To, not that they were the ones who resurrected Christ, but that he was recognizing them as such. Yes, yes, yes. It's always been sort of a irritation to some people, uh, particularly uh, Bible scholars, that it was uh, to Mary Magdalene and other women that Christ appeared to first after his resurrection, rather than to his apostles. And then I always get a question in somebody's mind that uh, either they are afraid to ask or they'll come up afterwards and say, well, why didn't he appear to Mary first? What would be your answer? The thing is, we don't know that he didn't. And most likely, it was a very private form of meeting, and it was not something that was to be published. Yes. I would imagine that his appearance to Mary was probably the first one, but not something that was to be shared. Yeah. But yes, uh, as it was mentioned, because Eve is the one that screwed things up in the first place, pardon the expression, uh, it was, it was to women in general that Christ appeared to after his resurrection uh, first. All right. And to Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is often called the apostle to the apostles, all right? Because Christ sent her to tell the apostles that to go to Galilee first of all, and then that he had raised was raised from the dead. Okay, so in that idea of sending, that's what the word apostle means to be sent by Christ. So. She is often designated as the apostle to the apostles. Yeah. All right. Yes, Jennifer. Well, you'll always find somebody that will disagree with every single point that is being made. Uh, but you can be reassured that Christ died for our sins. That is Catholic doctrine and dogma. And if 
she or anyone else disputes that, have them go and look up uh, the, the doctrines on that. And I'd be very glad to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. In fact, if, well, if you want to have another meeting next week, I'll. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Connie? We've talked several times about the concentration Yes. Well, actually, the bells originated way back, I don't remember exactly just when, 10th century seems to come into mind. Uh, since the Mass was always in Latin for so many years, and people were uneducated for so many years, People in, you know, and the masses would go on and on and on, as they do in some countries even today, for hours, people would fall asleep. And so the bells were originated to wake them up at the most important time. Yeah. And that was at the consecration, yes. And the idea of waking people up is because we are at a very important part of the Mass. That's right. But the bells and the ringing them is up to the bishop, the local bishop. It is not something that is required. And it is not uniformly used throughout all of the church. Yeah. The same way with holding hands. The same way with extending your hands you know, at the Eucharistic prayer, uh, those are all things that have kind of crept in over the years, but they are not part of the official Mass. So whether you participate them uh, with them or not makes no difference. Yes? Could it be also, because remember, in the old Latin the priest was not faithful to the people, so that they had to ring the bells because they could not see him. They could only see his back. That's right. And so, and so, uh, in order for them to tell them, hey, hello, this is happening right now, they would ring the bells to let them know because they could not see him. Yes. Yes, that's what Elizabeth's saying is is true. Also, in many of the churches in 
Europe. There is a grill work between the sanctuary and the people. Most of that has been taken down in American churches, but in many of the big cathedral type or fancy churches in Europe, there's this grill work where you can't see what's going on at the altar. And so the bells help you to understand that this is an important part of the Eucharist. The bells is just to say, I'm sorry, the grill? Oh, the, the grills were put in there because way back in the early, you know, 10th century when those churches were, were built, they felt that only the priests were holy enough to be part or that close to what was going on. And all the rest of us peons were not worthy of it, so we sat up. Yeah. Yes, the altar. Remember the altar rails that we used to have? Yeah. It was the same thing. Only some of these churches in Europe, uh, the altar rails, you know, go all the way up. Yeah. And very gold and, you know, all of that stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting. But those, again, are not part of the official uh, Mass. <laughs> well, you know, let, let's say there, there are multiple purposes. <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you want them to be, they are, you know. Yes, Matt? Uh, what about Latin? Uh, what if you didn't understand it? Well, if you didn't understand it, that's why a lot of people started uh, devotions to the saints. That became, people didn't understand what was going on way up there at the altar. So, you know, they started their own internal devotions. And they would look at the saints and the stained glass windows and so forth. And that became the cult of the saints. Yeah. So, Chet? Well, uh, you know, Kyrie eleison is not Latin, it's Greek. All right. Yes, there is, there is a movement, there is a movement to bring back some of the Latin, of the Latin. Uh, I, I don't particularly agree personally with it myself. Um, because, you know, well, people will just ignore it because they, most of them don't understand. Uh, and it's not something where you have the English on one side and the Latin or Greek on the other. We don't do that anymore. Yes, Conchita? Yes, Conchita? Well, I was listening to what you were saying about uh, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And it's interesting that the Latin is 
sent me new work. And um, and personally, to me, those parts of us are shaping us back to our Judeo-Christian tradition. I think it's very important for us to recognize that we aren't just people wandering in the desert following rules, that we do have a connection to the past mm -hmm. as well. And we tend to sing the Kyrie in Latin always during Lent and during Advent as well. So it's, um, personally, I think it's quite lovely. Well, that's good. I, it's, I, not, yeah. it's not like the whole Mass is in some other language. It's in the vernacular. So. Uh -huh. But I think uh, your comment about tying it into the past is, is interesting and somewhat poignant. Yeah, that uh, we do have um, a touch of the ancient uh, ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, the Latin is the official language of the Yes. And that is Latin. And that is why uh, we are Roman Catholic. Because we, 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 uh, we worship in, in one common language, which is Latin. Everybody in the Vatican communicates in one language, Latin. Yes, yes. Latin is the universal language, and it still is, even though the liturgies are translated into the local language, Latin is still the official language of the church. When they have conclaves or other important, you know, synods or other important meetings in Rome or anywhere else on behalf of the entire church, it is all, con <coughs> all conducted in Latin. And when any documents are issued, official documents, on doctrine or dogma, they are always issued first in Latin. Would they use it in the Vatican? Yes. Yes. Um, and then they are translated from uh, the Latin into the local language. But Latin is still the primary language. Again, that is a way of holding the church together. It is a, you know, a sign really of the uniformity of the church, regardless of the language that the local people speak, the whole idea of holding the church together uh, in Latin, I think, is very important. Thank you. Uh, yes, Mary? In the hierarchy of the church, yes. Many of the cardinals have expressed an interest in bringing back perhaps not all of the Latin, but major portions of it. And I think you're seeing that right now. Yeah, you're seeing some of that right now. And of course, the Tridentine Mass, which is the old Latin Mass, 
is celebrated in certain churches by permission with the bishop, though. Only by permission with the bishop uh, on occasions. Yeah. And you can call the Vatican uh, the Vatican. <laughs> Good luck there. Uh, you can call the bishop's office to find out w what churches are having the Latin Mass and when. Uh -huh. But there is a Latin Mass going on, but it has to be with the permission of the bishop and has to be for a specific reason. Yeah. Uh, again, holding things together, yeah, showing the uniformity and, and particularly a connection to the past. Yeah. See, Latin never changes, and therefore, if you if something is cemented in Latin, it's, it'll remain that way forever. No, but unfortunately, it doesn't help us uh, everyday people, but. Um, it, it, it is part of the structure of our, our faith. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I'm trying to be on February 7th. We did the Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Sure, by all means. Let me see, uh, you know, come up and talk about it after the meeting. Yes. Okay, any other questions? All right, now the big question. Oh, Gene. Oh, well, wait a No, in, in a minute, in a minute. Uh, what about uh, a next session? What would you like to talk about and study the next session? Not that I'm committing myself, you know. <laughs> but I would like to know, you know, so that I can think about it. Uh, the next session of the Adult Bible Study Program would begin about the middle of September. Okay. So, anyone have any specific thoughts? Yes. Uh, the lives of the saints. Uh, that would be interesting. Uh, I'll have to think about that one now. Yeah. Yes, Doris? Wait, wait, please. Let's keep the chatter down so we can hear. The history of the church. Yes, that's something that I would really be interested in, but it would be a lot of work. So. Yes. Uh, all right. It just so happens I got a book. I got a book about that thick, you know, that is sort of the history of the church. And there are a lot of them, but to put it into a 10-week course, I think would be interesting. Would you all be interested in that? The history of the church. Yeah. Diana? That would, that would be interesting too. That could be brought in as part of the history of the church because the church was affected tremendously by the Reformation as you can well imagine. 
and it caused a <coughs> ecumenical council called the Council of Tr uh, Trent in 1534. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me. So glad you brought it. <laughs> yes. Hmm? Pure vodka. Yeah, that's what Bob said. Yeah. Study of the mass. Um, that would probably not take more than one or two classes. Uh, the mass evolved really in the first and second century to almost what it is today. The essence of the mass is still the consecration of the bread and wine and the consumption of that which we call Holy Communion. Remember years ago, we used to say, oh, well, I went to mass and Holy Communion. Well, since Vatican II, they're saying that that is improper, that the whole mass is the sacrament of the Eucharist. And so you cannot separate them. And also, years ago, you used to, I used to go to a church some years ago that the priest would come out and say, particularly on a weekday, the first early weekday mass, he'd come out and say something, well, for those of you who can't stay for the whole mass, if you want to come up, I'll give you communion now. <laughs> And that was that was not unusual. That was not unusual. Um, the uh, the Pope, right? I think it was Paul VI, uh, stopped that. You can only receive communion uh, during a mass, or if you are ill and homebound uh, or dying. But otherwise, no. Yes, Doris. Well, it'd have to be St. Paul's, yeah, St. Paul's teachings, yeah. Well, that's right. That would be interesting. Yeah. All right. you can have service, especially if you Well, no, that's even being stopped. I mean, like in my sister's church, they share a priest with another yeah. parish, and if something happens at the priest there at the time, the deacon does a. I know, but that is that is being discontinued. Uh, what he's not in this diocese, I'm sure. No, no, no. 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 Yeah. yeah. Also, if you read the reading, you're not supposed to receive communion. That's what I was told. Well, that, that's that's debatable, Justin. Yeah, that's debatable. Uh, years, years ago now, I'm going back to the title chapter. He used to say, to see Mass, see a Mass, gospel consecration in communion. Yeah, yes. But the Mass is, from the beginning to the end, one event. It is the sacrament of the Eucharist. And in fact, they're trying to get away, the church is trying to get away from the use, using the word mass. 
because mass in itself has no meaning. The word, mass, the word mass comes from the Latin again when the mass used to be ended by the words item misses. All right, and that is where the word mass came from. But in itself, it has no meaning, and so they are trying to get away from the use of the word mass and use the celebration of the Eucharist instead, which is much more meaningful. The word Eucharist is Greek for the word thanks, thanksgiving to God himself. Yeah. Okay, Connie? I can't remember who, but on Friday a lady is coming out, and the person who plays Christ means the past. Yeah, that's St. That's Paul the Apostle. Yes, yes, yes. Jim, Jim Serviso, who played Christ in The Passion of the Christ, is not St. Paul in this movie. He's Luke. Yes, he is St. Luke in that in the new movie. Uh, it's also done by Mel Gibson. Yeah, produced by Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah. All right. Any any other questions? All right. Now, Jim, uh, Gene, I'm sorry. Gene has got a, an announcement he would like to make. Yes. Christians are disaffected Catholics. And so 
as a result of Vatican II, we have been directed, we've been told we are the body of Christ. We are called to be holy. We are called to share and to evangelize. So why not evangelize our own? We all know Catholics who don't attend Mass for whatever reason they may have. Some very legitimate reasons, some have no idea whatsoever. The other thing that we have discovered over the years is that most Catholics, even those who attend Mass every week and they're in the pews, they have a 12, a 12 to 13 year old knowledge of our faith. That's way too long ago for many people to really understand anymore what we do. We spend a great deal of time during our six-week session talking about the Mass because the Mass is, is truly the way we experience our faith the most. But some of the other subjects we cover are um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We spend a good deal of time on Vatican II and the changes that have occurred in our lifetime because of Vatican II. While we changed how the Mass is delivered to us, nothing has really changed at all. So we studied Justin Martyr and the early church, and we compared the way we celebrate the Eucharist now and how it was celebrated at the very beginning. It's really quite remarkable. We also talk about the Catholic ethics, prayer, the rosary, personal devotions, the Bible and the life of Catholics. Um, we take a tour of the church and show our people the nooks and crannies and they, so that they can feel more a part of where we worship. Um, and as we have discovered over the years when people accompany uh, lapsed Catholics to our, our classes, we have discovered that they learn as much as the people who have been away. So we would love to invite each and every one of you. Um, I have a few of these uh, sheets that explains this ministry a little bit. But to feel welcome to attend our class that begins April 17th, um, it will begin at 7 o'clock and we're in the St. Luke room. Um, again, it's a way for us to be part of the commissioning. Um, uh, I once asked Father Liam what was the most important part of the Mass, because I just knew how to do the consecration, right? So I asked him, what's the most important part of the Mass? And he told me what you have said, all of it. So one of my pet peeves is those people who leave Mass before the Great Commissioning, because every time we attend Mass, we are given that instruction to go forth and live our lives the way Christ expects us to live and to help others do the same. So to leave Mass before the Great Commissioning, you missed out on something. So anyway, I, once again, I invite you to join us and we'll, we would be happy to spend time with you and answer questions. We usually have some of the clergy join us and, you know, we try as best we can to fulfill people's needs. Um, and I also want you to know that some of the most active parishioners in our parish have gone through this class. So, um, yeah, it's a blessing for those of us who teach. And the more we give to them, the more we receive in return. 
So thank you now for letting us usurp your time here. Let's go ahead. Thank you. Thank you both. I can't do any better than that, so let's end, end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you not only for this, this day, but for the ability to study our faith over the past ten weeks. We ask your blessing to help us go forward and to live our faith, live what we've learned, understand and share it with others in not a bold uh, disturbing or intruding way, but for an inviting way that will help others come to enjoy our faith as well. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.